And so, Father in heaven, as we come to your word, as you are the God who has lavished upon us great mercy and delight in the salvation that we have received, O Lord, as your word is able to sanctify us because it is the truth, we pray today that you would set us apart more to yourself. Help us to be a people who delight in you. And we pray, Father, that you may send your spirit, for through your word he works that which is effectual to our salvation and growth in grace in Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, if you'll please turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. We'll continue in this chapter we began last week. Today we will be looking at verses 9 through 21. If you are able, if you will please stand. This is found on page 817 of your ESV Pew Bibles. (coughs) Pardon me. I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open. We don't have really any other verses that we'll be turning to today, but it is always good for us to remember that this is not the pastor speaking. These are not his ideas, but rather this is the word of God. It is an errant and fallible. Let us hear it with great reverence. Lay these truths upon our hearts as we seek to practice them in our lives with exceeding great joy. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. He, our Lord Jesus Christ, went from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will have hope. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Our passage this morning begins very shortly after what we heard last week, as Jesus declared himself in verse 8 to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And in so doing, on the one hand, he proves that the Pharisees, regardless of their boasting in the knowledge and the practice of the law of God, really have absolutely no idea what in the world they're talking about. In fact, as we noticed last week in verse 2, the reason why they called the acts of Christ and his disciples unlawful, despite the fact that Jesus clearly shows them that they do actually have allowance within the word, is because they're unable to make a distinction between what the Lord has given and their own extra-biblical regulations. But on the other hand, I'd like for us to note that Jesus, in declaring himself to be Lord of the Sabbath, that he does so because here he reveals the true intent of the Sabbath. At the end of our sermon last week, we heard from Mark chapter 2, verse 27, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
Now mind you, that is not giving us free reign to do our own will on the Lord's day. Come back tonight as we look at the fourth command, we will see quite differently. But rather, it is to free us from the burden of what we have often attached to the Sabbath day and to the Lord's day, to free us to do with it as God has intended, which is to love and to serve him and to grow in his grace and in the great knowledge of him. Let us understand that that's what we see in verses 9 through 10 this morning as Christ goes into a synagogue and as we hear in Luke chapter 4, 16, as was his custom... As we see him going into the synagogue, he see, here finds a man with a withered hand. may have seen individuals like this in the past whose hands are knotted up, kind of shriveled and unable to move, even as the disciples were and take the heads of grain off the, uh, brand, or off of the uh, standing grain in the field. And along with that posture of the hand, there is a painfulness that comes with it. Now, mind you, in seeing someone like this, most of us would look to this individual and have empathy for them, to understand the difficulty that they are going through, but understand that that's not the case with the Pharisees. Instead, understanding the delight of Jesus to heal, they set a trap for him, as we are told in verse 10, by asking him the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. They're always trying to find a crime that Jesus is committing. But let us note that, as we often find with the Lord of the Sabbath, our Lord Jesus Christ responds to their question with a question of his own. And I want you to note just the common sense nature of this, which also is found within the law of God, what we hear in verse 11. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out. Now, mind you, the reason why this is very commonsensical is because, mind you, everyone would do this. If it were yours, you would do it. You would bear the burden yourself. In fact, you may even burden others by calling them out to do this as well. That's an easy thing to answer here. But the question that Jesus is using, much like what we saw last week, as much of his argumentation was going from the lesser to the greater, Christ being the greater here, that what he's saying is if this is the case, how much more for a person than a sheep? How much more should you have empathy and pity on a person who is made in the image of God, one of his own that he cares for, one of those that he keeps? As we mentioned from J.C. Ryle last week, as he says that the first table does not make us forget the second table. As we mentioned that this was the basis for the exceptions that we find to the rule of the Sabbath, that we are free to engage in works of mercy and necessity. And I want you to notice that what we're seeing right now with a man with a withered hand, that both mercy and necessity are actually needed. And this is why in verse 13 he turns to the man instead of the Pharisees and said, stretch out your hand. And we're told that immediately his, the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. And I want us to understand that and think through that. As we considered the, the Sabbath last week, understand that as we look to what Jesus is doing here, really what day is more appropriate to see the power of God to heal Yes, those who are twisted up in their own persons, but more so those who have been twisted and warped by sin 
so that they may be spiritually restored, how more appropriate than the day than Christ would raise from the dead. And I want you to hear that because as we have found with the crowds, and at the end of Matthew chapter 7, as we are told that they are astonished with the teaching of Christ, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And as we heard in chapters 8 and 9, as we see the same authority of Christ evident in his miracles, notice that when Christ declares it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that he's not just asserting his authority to be able to do these things as God, but he is asserting his authority over all things. For this is what we heard in chapter 11, verse 27, all things, all authority has been handed over to me by my Father. Now mind you, while this is not going to keep the religious leaders from attempting to ensnare Jesus with petty accusations, notice at this point in time that we see them beginning to take more extreme measures in verse 14, where we're told, but the Pharisees and hearing this and seeing what Jesus did, these things falling upon their eyes and the words falling upon their ears and then being blind and deaf to it, that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, we might think, well, it's just destroy his reputation, destroy his ministry. But let us understand, as we hear in Luke chapter 6, we're told that they were filled with fury. And at that moment, they could have killed Jesus on the spot if it were not for them still trying to protect their own reputations and to be seen for who they are. That's what led them to begin scheming to bring about the eventual demise of our Lord Jesus Christ in their eyes. Dear friends, I want us to note that because in Matthew's gospel, as we have made our way through it for a little over a year, probably about 16 months now, let us understand that at this point we are turning a very significant corner. Because the anger of the Pharisees, as we will continue to see in chapter 12, will do nothing but continue to grow and increase Until chapter 26, where they are still not satisfied after they crucify Christ, for that is what it will lead to. But I want us to hear this morning, as we see this turn, or this change that is very subtly taking place before our eyes in verse 14, the thing I want us to note is what Matthew wants us to note this morning, is how Jesus responds to it in verses 15 and 16. For note, what we hear here is that Jesus, aware of this, knowing everything that's taking place, knowing what they're doing, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Now, I want you to note that we've heard this exact same thing with the healing of the leper in chapter 8, verse 4, when Jesus says to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer a gift that Moses has commanded for a proof to them. Now, mind you, they never listen. In any of the Gospels, it's always the same thing, that they go off and tell what Jesus has done. And we might wonder, well, why is that? Isn't it important for people to know who Christ is and understand that he is willing to save? Well, yes, it is. But understand that our passage, while we can see and will hear maybe some other reasons for this, The main reason why Jesus is doing this is found in verse 17, that this 
was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. It's been a little while since we heard that this was done, or he was doing this to fulfill Scripture. We've seen that since the beginning, but here again we see it coming back and almost announces here that this is going to be a point where it begins ramping up more and more and more, that Jesus is fulfilling all of Scripture. That everything spoken of the Christ, he is going to fill up to perfection. And I think that's important for us to understand. Because when we tend to think of our Lord Jesus Christ, we tend to expect to see him as the mighty God who is performing tremendous acts. As a great king who will come and triumph over sin, subduing man to himself and bringing them into the kingdom by faith through himself. And mighty, that is always a good thing. But dear friends, so is seeing what we will find in our passage this morning. Seeing that our king is a humble savior. In fact, the rest of our passage today between verses 18 through 21 is actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 42 is one of the four servant songs that we find in Isaiah here speaking about who the servant of the Lord is going to be. We see it concluding here, not only or beginning with uh, humility, but we see it ending with Isaiah, the end of chapter 52 and all of 53, where we see that he is a suffering servant. Gives us an understanding of the whole of who Jesus is. And again, what we are going to see here, what is going to be described is a king who could have overcome easily these who were against him, but rather we are going to find one that we would not expect on this occasion. We're going to see a king who is consistent with what we have heard Jesus already say. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, when he says, Come to me all who are heavy, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And why is that? Because it shows us this morning that because he has humbled himself and was humiliated for the sake of sinners, so we ourselves are to humble our persons and come and to receive him in his salvation. That this is what the Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled. And I want you to note it this morning that that is why we need to consider our humble Savior. And consider this aspect of his person, which does not deviate from the greatness of it, but only further accentuates it as we see what he has done in his greatness, in his power, in his glory of who he is. And note this morning, we simply begin by considering his disposition before God the Father. We begin by considering his disposition before God the Father. And mind you, we've already mentioned the relationship between the Father and Son. And while we've noticed something of the goodness of God in this familial relationship, that there is a closeness and a deep and abiding and eternal love between God the Father and God the Son, notice that we also hear something of the subordination of the second person of the Trinity to the Father for the sake of our salvation. Now, mind you, I want to be very cautious with this because in recent years we have been dealing in reform circles with something called the eternal subordination of the Son. It says that Jesus has always been subject to the Father, even though they are both eternal and of the same substance, equal in power and glory. 
Let us understand that what we're seeing in our passage today shows us that Jesus has not eternally been so, but from eternity, for the sake of salvation, has subordinated himself willingly, humbled himself to serve the Father's will of salvation, to do what is necessary to bring it forth for us. And I want you to note that we see this actually fleshed out in this passage through four words that describe our Lord before the Father. And the first of those is that he is a servant. Behold, my servant. Now, mind you, this is not the typical word in the Greek for a slave or even a servant, the doulos, but rather it is one that speaks of a child. One who would work individually with uh, the uh, individual who uh, possesses this person and uh, would be, there would be an affection for them. That there would be a joy and a love. But let us understand that what it definitively speaks to here is of someone who has absolutely no standing whatsoever. And I think that's exactly what the Apostle Paul borrows from in understanding of that in Philippians chapter 2. When he said that though he had the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, again, that word emptied here can be a little tricky. Many people have distorted it for their own uh, enjoyment. But let us understand that when it tells us that he has emptied himself, it is not that he ceased to be God. The miracles that Jesus is doing, yes, is because of his relationship to the Father. The Father has given him all things, all authority to do this. But let us understand it's because he continues to be God. But rather the emptying himself, as Paul tells us, is him divesting himself of glory and honor that we would have seen of him if he was in heaven and the glory that he was clothed in changed as he comes to earth and puts himself in the rags and the poverty of humanity. Let us understand that what Paul is telling us, the same thing that Isaiah is telling us and that Matthew is quoting here, is that Jesus has made himself extraordinarily low beyond anything that we could consider in regards to humility. But I secondly want us to see that this is because... He is the one whom God has chosen, that he is my servant whom I have chosen. Mind you, that he has not taken this honor upon himself, but rather that he has been elected by God to fulfill this work and to be a mediator. And because it is necessary, he has willingly submitted himself to it. And why is that? Why is he the one that the Father has chosen? Well, simply as we see thirdly, that he is the beloved. You see, God is at enmity with all man, and all man is fallen, and they are not able to do God's will entirely. But here he chooses this one who is the supreme object of his affections. In fact, it's the same thing really that we are hearing in Matthew chapter three seventeen. Behold, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And that well pleased is what we see fourthly in this passage of the servant is that he was well the father was well pleased with the son because he knew that he would fully focus his attentions on doing nothing but the will of the father 
that he entrusted this to him because he knew that he would do this. And I want you to see that even in our own passage that we see that Christ will do, first and foremost, the work of God. Look again to verse 15 when we are told that he healed them all. And mind you, that's a very powerful statement because in a sense there are some people who would say, well, isn't he just kind of flaunting his power and healing all of these people? Well, let us understand, no, that that's not the case at all. Because if we think about this rightly as Christ, as being equal with God, he is being the one who is instrumental in creation and the one who alone in himself is able to uphold the universe even at this time that what we're seeing with these healings is really a small exercise of his power. This is Christ doing what God does because he is God. And he is fulfilling the will of the Father that he has laid out for him in this work. But I also want to see that he is also one who would be very sensitive to the Father's timing. Again, again, we see in verse 15 that Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. That he leaves and goes away. And then also in verse 16, and those whom he healed, he ordered them not to make him known. Now, I wanted us to see that because we often think odd of that. Well, why would Jesus do that? Well, let us understand that if Jesus was to continue, if he was to have his fame rise, that would further provoke the Pharisees. And as Jesus tells us in John chapter 7, 6, my time is not yet at hand And that is the reason why he humbly withdrew so he could continue to do all the will of the Father until the time of the appointed time when he would make a sacrifice for sin. This is the level to which Jesus has submitted himself to doing the will of the Father. And I want you to see that it is nothing but a picture of what we find in Matthew chapter 5, 5, that blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. For he leaves everything into the hands of the Father who loves and cares for him. But also, as we see, as he puts his spirit upon him, notice that this speaks to us, yes, of the Father pouring out his spirit upon the Son. But it ensures us here that as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are at work here, that they are ensuring that they will accomplish this salvation, that it will all be done by God and nothing of man. Because this is something that easily escapes the attention of man. That's why Isaiah also says, behold, look, see. Because I don't want you to miss any of what's going on here. Because this is not the king that you expect. You're going to look past him and look to someone else. Because he's not going to seem very great in our eyes. But let us understand that that he is the one who is the gift of God. For he will bring to us salvation from the Lord. And this morning I ask you, do you consider the depths that Christ condescended to come and to save man? That being in the highest and the greatest of glory himself, being one with the Father and the Spirit forever, that he came to earth and was immersed in a world of sin and took on a body that would change That he gave himself up for this purpose. And though he is himself God, do we take into account how he humbled himself before God to do his will? And do we understand that it's because this is the only way that salvation is able to come 
is through a humble Savior. But secondly, this morning, I'd also like for us to note the contrast between the humility of Jesus before God the Father and what we see of his humble disposition before the proud. That we see, secondly, that here is Jesus' humble disposition before the proud. How is he? Now, mind you, in the Bible, yes, we do get some instances where pride is spoken of well. With the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, 4, he said, I take great pride in the Lord, that the Lord is his boasting. But here, notice that pride is the defining character of the Pharisee. That they are characterized by hubris, self-centeredness, self-righteousness. That they believe that they are something before God. And I want you to note that their sinful pride is what has made it necessary for Christ to humble himself. So that they may see the prides of their own heart to reflect upon that in and of themselves. And that's because as we see with all sin, brothers and sisters... That this is where pride begins. We hear from Obadiah, verse 3, that the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in lofty dwellings, you who say in your hearts, who will bring me down to the ground. Let us understand that that is something that you don't need to do just if you're living up on a house on a hill, but it's something that any of us can do. With money, with our skill, with our strength, our intelligence, With those whom we identify and say, well, you know, this person, they make me into somebody I would like to be. And I will also tell you that I have seen on regular occasion, even with those who do not have anything, that sometimes they will claim their nothing or their victimhood in this world as something. And I want you to keep that in mind because anything we can have can can inflate our view of ourselves. So that it sets us apart and makes us better or more righteous than others who are around us. But as with everything, understand that pride does not stay in the heart. It is something that makes its way out through our actions. It's heard in our speech as we hear in Daniel chapter 4 that we are those who walk in pride. And as we hear in Psalm 73 that pride is the necklace of those who go about boasting that it is their glory, it's their reason for being. And because it evokes a certain degree of confidence, that is one of those things that can begin to convince others as well. And I want you to see that because that's where there is danger in this, because pride is never something that ends well. So we hear in Proverbs chapter 16, the pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before the fall. And I want you to see that because in The time that God shows, in time, God shows all pride for what it is and what it does as it creates tension in those who try to maintain the deception of it. Pride always needs to be re-inflated on a daily basis. And that's what we see with the Pharisees. That they had been utterly content with who they were and their own righteousness until Jesus comes on the scene. That they were able to say, yes, we are the godly elite, but now all of a sudden a different level of things is here before them. And that's why they begin to be uh, angry and begin to grow more and more in their hostility. Because, mind you, understand that pride can never deal with humility. 
And what we will see with the Pharisees throughout is that the pride of the Pharisees cannot deal with the humility of Christ. And that's what Isaiah tells us in verse 19 when he says that he will not quarrel or cry aloud. That he's not going to be one who lingers long and squabbles over petty matters that cause an uproar as the Pharisees did to make them appear to be someone. That Christ is going to humbly give himself to do the work of the Father. But notice verse 19 also tells us that he will not make his voice heard in the street. You see, everyone there really expected that he was the Christ. They, they believed, they looked at Jesus and saw what he was doing. He's got, he's got to be the Christ. But the point of confusion that comes about is that he doesn't come with pomp as everyone would expect from a king. Loudly announcing who he is so that everyone would know. Instead, let us understand, as we'll hear in Matthew chapter 23, this is what the Pharisees did. That they did all of their deeds to be seen by others. They made the phylacteries or the little headbands that they wore very broad and their fringes long. They took the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. And the reason is, is because for or to be a Pharisee, you have to be a brash self-promoter. But notice, by contrast, Christ before the proud humbles himself and simply preaches the word that is able to make us wise to salvation. But let us understand that because Christ humbled himself and that is not anything that the Pharisees wanted to do, let us see on the one hand that the Pharisees deeply resented our Lord Jesus Christ. That if he had only taken the opportunity to seek some degree of honor or praise that he could have been on the same level as they were. But nevertheless, he continually made himself low, though all knew he was worthy of honor. And they hated it. But on the other hand, we also see of the Pharisees that they were jealous of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were the experts. They were the religious leaders. And he is a nobody from nowhere with nothing to maintain. He was never attempting to keep up appearances of an exalted view or of righteousness. And they envied that. It just sucked the life out of them because they knew that they were slaves and they knew the only way that they would ever find relief was to humble themselves and trust in their God and they could not and would not do it. And let that be a lesson to us, brothers and sisters, this morning because pride of the heart is easily inflated and grown within us, but it is almost nearly impossible to kill. As David tells us in Psalm 10, in pride, the face of the wicked did not seek him in all their thoughts. There is no God. Sometimes we just get a little too inflated that even God is pushed out to the side. And I want you to know as the Pharisees saw the humility of Christ before God, as they saw this of him, it became a personal threat to their own righteousness. And I ask us this morning... And considering the humble disposition of Christ before the proud, what stands in our way of humbling ourselves and coming to Christ on his terms? What things or habits, if we were to go without them, would keep us from being perceived the way we want to be perceived by others? And what do we hope to bring 
or what hope, or pardon me, what do we hope will bring us rest in this world? That is not God. Because we know that and will never bring rest because it is the very thing that we always fear to lose. Dear friends, this is a question asked to everyone. But I want you to know that because it is asked to all of us, that lastly I'd like to give us encouragement in the Lord by finally having us consider that his humble disposition before the humble. See his humble disposition before the humble. Those who come to terms with who they are before God and do not continue to stoke their pride, but come to Christ because as we are told in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And I want you to hear here how the humble are described. First, as a bruised reed, like a piece of grass or a a thick reed that we would find that has been trampled or crushed underfoot. It's treated as something insignificant that you can always find something else. And I want you to see that that's what we often note of ourselves over our own sin. But here in this context, this is what Israel was experiencing as a result of the cruelty of the Pharisees and the heavy burdens and doctrine that they taught. That they were bruised reeds, but also were told that they were smoldering wicks. Those who once may have been useful to the Lord and desired to shine forth the light of who he is. But the flame that had been burning on the wick had been all but extinguished by the winds of false doctrine and practice of the Pharisees. They began to see, well, and think, well, nothing is right, nothing is useful. As they are left to burn out because they believe at this point that everything is pointless. And I want you to note that because humbled by this experience, as it seems to them that everything is worthless, as it seems that everyone is worthless, let us understand it's worthless to everyone but our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Isaiah is telling us here and what Matthew is emphasizing of him personally and his ministry to us is that he is telling us, I can do something with this. And I promise that I will. I will tenderly stoop and with a gentle hand take hold of and again make the reed stable. And what has been inclined to snap, I will enable to stand firm again against the world and the flesh and the devil. And even with a sympathetic urgency, Christ will carefully do the work, the tedious work of fanning to flame the faith of those whose faith has become very dim and weak. That which is prone to be snuffed out entirely. In fact, it would be easier if it just was that he is able to make it burn brightly to show forth the glory and the power of God. And I want you to hear that because often we tend to think of the word gentle, which is spoken of Jesus Christ as something that is weak or someone who is weak. But let us understand that I like to define gentleness as strength under control. It is strength under control. It is that which not only exercises power, but does so carefully and wisely to help those who are weak and who understand that they are in need. 
And that's exactly what we find with our Lord Jesus Christ as he heals the sick and feeds the hungry. But how much more as he pardons sinners, comforts those who mourn, encourages those who are fearful, and reassures the doubt of all who have humbled themselves and who have come to him. That is something that we need to remember this morning. Because there are times when our communion with God is a very difficult thing. There are times where our repentance is not something we would want to touch because our faith and our hope and our love, we know, are not what they should be. But let us know that this is not a time for us to turn to ourselves or try to convince others that we are something that we are not. But it is time to humble ourselves and find the truth as we hear in Job 36 that God is mighty and he does not despise any. His mighty strength, we understand what it is. And for that reason, this is why we can say that we are able to draw near to Christ with confidence. That we are able to come to the throne of grace and find it as it is and receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Hear me this morning that though our faith might be small, it's always enough to come and take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he willingly humbled himself before the Father, before the prideful, he does it with the humble. For we who are lowly there we see that we are able to take hold of him and that he promises to strengthen. He has promised to give us grace so that we don't have to continue in the sin that crushes us. We don't have to continue in the sin that snuffs out faith because of the actions of our own hearts, that we do not have to continue to go on doing as we have done in the past. And we can be assured of this, Because he gives the promise to the humble that this is not something that will ever cease until as we see in the end of verse 20, until he brings justice to victory. That he's telling us that he will succeed even when he is exalted. Continuing to bring victory through those who come into the kingdom through humility of the word and the spirit of the truth of the gospel. He will do this. And I want you to know this because he's not just saying this is true for Israel. Yes, Isaiah is writing to them at the time, but he is telling us of a future work from his time in uh, history and uh, where this is what humility of Christ will yield. For we're told in verse 18 that Christ and his justice will be proclaimed to the Gentiles. We hear at the end of verse 21 that in his name the Gentiles will hope. Because they humble themselves, those who do not know him will be established in the kingdom as those who have lived their entire lives in it. And they will find hope in his name even when they themselves become objects of jealousy, resentment, and rejection because they have humbled themselves and sought to find rest in Christ. Let us hear this this morning. Because now... And every time is always the time where we need to humble ourselves. This is the time where lowly sinners find a reverence when we are 
putting ourselves rightly well below him. And we see our Savior in the humility of his own person and how he graciously there even teaches us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God because at the right and proper time he will exalt us. Is that something we desire? To be lifted up by our God, then we must make ourselves low and rightly before him, not just something we do with our tongues. But the question often is, is, well, how do we do this? I don't even know how to begin to humble myself because it's so different from everything that I'm inclined to do. Well, let us understand that we do this by resting by faith and the fact that the same spirit that God the Father has poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ now dwells in each of his own. And yes, so that we may humble ourselves before our God. And yes, so we may do the will before the proud of this world. And yes, so that we may help those who are humble. But let us understand, yes, so that we may always come to and find strength to live in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to him now in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are a blind people who often do not recognize the fact that you have humbled yourself to show us what we ourselves need to do. Open our eyes to this truth today that by faith and understanding, O Lord, the greatness and majestic nature of who you are, that we may live and find our place before you, knowing that the proud will never be able to get underneath us, They will never be able to shake us. For we do not rest in ourselves or the things of this world that we hope that will make much of us. But our rest is in Christ. Help us to cling closely to he who has humbled himself. For as he has promised, he indeed will bring us to himself and glorify us for Jesus' sake. Amen.